Hello, and welcome to the Sola Gratia Sermons Podcast. I'm so glad that you decided to drop in today. I pray that you enjoy this sermon and that God, through His Word, convicts you, encourages you, and edifies you. I also pray that this sermon increases your knowledge of God and grows your love for Him and His Scripture. God bless you and keep you. Soli Deo Gloria. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Um, I really want to extend my gratitude and thanks for giving me this opportunity to to speak to you and to preach the word of God. Um, That is my my desire and um, a passion that God's kind of given me over the past um, couple years or so. And um, uh, I don't know what that means yet. I don't know what he has for me, where he's going to take me. Um, so right now, as I explained to Robert over Facebook, I'm basically just trying to be obedient and um, take every opportunity I can. So um, can you all hear me okay? We good? Yeah? Let me turn, this, let me turn the mic in a little bit. There we go. <laughs> um, so if you'd open your Bibles with me, we're going to be in First Thessalonians this morning. Uh, chapter 5. And uh, what we want to talk about uh, is this biblical idea that there are a few things that we as Christians are to never cease in doing. Are, there are things that we should never give up on, that should never be far away from us. These things should always be close at hand. We should never cease in doing certain things as believers. I'm sure that some of you are probably familiar with the experience of having a small child, for instance, that needs your attention, right? And they're begging for your attention and they're screaming sometimes, most of the time, screaming at you and they're saying, daddy, 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 or mommy, 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 I need you, mommy, mommy. And you're like, Finally, what? Yes. Yes, my child, what? (laughs) And then they tell you something that was extremely important, you know, like, I lost my sock, you know. Okay, thank you, buddy, for telling me that. That was very important. (laughs) But this child is wanting your attention, right? They're incessantly calling for your attention without ceasing. They call your name and they tug at you and they yell at you until you acknowledge them, right? And likewise, as we'll see in this passage here in Thessalonians, there are some things that we as Christians are to never cease in doing. There are very important things that we are always to do as Christians in all circumstances, right? So what are these things? Well, as Christians, we should always have reason to rejoice always have reason to rejoice. And also we are to pray at all times, meaning in all circumstances, right? In every situation. And then furthermore, we are to always acknowledge that we are dependent on God. That's why we pray always, right? Pray in all circumstances. And then lastly, we are thankful in all things. We are to be thankful in all situations, all circumstances. So once again, I, w- I want to thank you for having me. It, it is a, truly an honor, and, and I appreciate you 
listening to me babble on for however long this is going to take. <laughs> and um, I I love the body of Christ. Um, so appreciate you guys and, and your local body. This is why we need each other, right? The local body lifting each other up and edifying one another. So I pray that uh, this word um, blesses you and encourages you and edifies you and convicts you and and uh, that God uses his word to go out in power, right? Uh, so if you would stand with me, uh, let's read this passage together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Paul writing, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we uh, we thank you for your word. It is life to us. We thank you that um, we thank you that we have the ability to commune with you through your word. We can study who you are. We can understand who you are in some finite way with our finite minds, Lord. You've given us your word so that we can study you and truly know the God of the universe, God. We are so thankful. Lord, help us as we work through this passage to understand why we can be thankful in all circumstances, why we can rejoice always, Lord. I pray that you would use me as an instrument, Lord, to preach your word and pray that uh, as I preach that it would not be me, Lord, but that people would see past me, that it would be in spite of me, Lord, that your word would go out in power and that you would overshadow me with your cross, God. Um, please use me and speak through your word, Father, as we dig in this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> you may be seated. So as we've uh, introduced here, what are we studying here in First in Thessalonians 5 in this section here? Uh, so there's three basic points here, and thankfully Paul makes it relatively easy in this passage, right? Paul does not always do that, but in this one, he lines it out pretty simply for us, right? One, two, three. Number one, we do not cease in joy, right? We do not cease in joy. And number two, we do not cease in prayer, right? And three, we do not cease in thankfulness. We do not cease in thankfulness. So he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So why is he writing this? I think a little textual history and context is always helpful, right? In understanding why he's saying the things he's saying, right? So this is written by Paul, of course, we know that it's his known linguistic characteristics, right? His writing style. And we also know that there's historical allusions in the letters to the Thessalonians that fit Paul's life as recounted in the book of Acts, right? So we see the, those patterns there and the confirmations there between the two books, or three books rather, Acts and, and both letters to the Thessalonians. So these letters, it's thought, um, were to have been written after a short stay in Thessalonica, right? Uh, the church in Thessalonica there is receiving these letters. And Paul and Silas, 
as I studied up on this, it's always wonderful studying some of the history here because I always learn uh, a lot when I'm digging in there. Believe me, this is not an insult on your intelligence, but I get a whole lot more out of this than you do because I have to study and look at all the history here and what's happening. Why is he saying these things, right? So I get so much out of it. But Paul and Silas, they had to leave Thessalonica pretty abruptly. If you didn't realize that, they had to go and had to be taken away by night, we're told. And they were taken away by night to uh, Berea. We're told that much in Acts chapter 17 after Paul has preached at the Jewish synagogue. We're told that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, right? He was explaining to them that Jesus was the Christ. He's the promised Messiah. And he's urging them to believe the gospel, to repent of their sin and to turn to Christ. Right. And then, of course, the wicked men of Thessalonica formed a mob and wanted to destroy him, hurt him, cane him, stone him, whatever the plan was there. And they sit the, set the city in an uproar and they complained, quote, that Paul and some of the other Christians had, quote, turned the world upside down. These men are turning the world upside down. They said they're claiming that there is another king, this Jesus. Caesar is our king, right? So as a result, like I said, Paul and Silas were taken away. They were sent away by night to Berea. But we can't forget the upside on this, that God was working, of course, through this situation. There were some Jews that were persuaded, we're told, right? As well as some Greeks and some men and women alike. And they believed the gospel that Paul was preaching. They believed the word of the Lord and they believed uh, what he was saying. So thus, the seed of the church in Thessalonica was planted because of what happened there. And so we get these letters from Paul that is written to that church. So what's his purpose in writing? So we have recent converts, right, from paganism. That's what was in this area. Paganism, demonic worship, false gods, all these things. So Paul's writing, number one, to encourage new believers, right? in their trials and their despair, their um, their uh, persecution, despite his apostolic absence, right? He's far from them. That's why he's writing this letter. And number two, he wants to give them instruction, right? Concerning godly living. What does the Christian life look like? What are How are we expected to behave, to carry ourselves? That's chapter four and five. And then lastly, he wants to give assurance, Assurance to new believers, young believers, as to what is our future? What can we expect after death? What's going to happen to us? That's chapters four and five as well. So in this passage of chapters chapter five, where we're at today, he's giving a little bit of both instruction and assurance, right? Instruction on how we are to behave as believers. There are qualities that we are to possess, right? Things that we are to practice. And he gives assurance specifically to what the will of God is. Now, this isn't exhaustive, of course, of the entirety of God's will. We could never fill up all the pages in the world as to what the will of God is. But he does give us an example here, a firm example. This is the will of God for you, right? This is how we carry ourselves. So number one, uh, we do not cease in joy. We do not cease in joy. So Paul says... Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Okay, well, how and why do we do this? 
right? That's the question, isn't it? Why do we do this? Well, firstly, it's important to recognize, make my phone stop vibrating here so I can rejoice always. There we go. <laughs> firstly, it's important to recognize that Paul is speaking to who? Believers. He's speaking to the church, right? So we can draw the conclusion throughout this this entire section of chapter 5 that only believers can do this, right? Only believers can rejoice always. And people of the world might argue with me on that a little bit, right? They say, well, I, I rejoice all the time. I'm happy and whatever. And I, I'm happy when I'm riding my jet ski. You know, I'm super happy when I'm out at the lake or I'm, I'm uh, uh, making money at my job or whatever. I'm happy. I do that all the time. Always, really, always. All the time. So happiness is not the same as joy, is it? Right? He's speaking to believers. Believers are expected to rejoice in all things. So what does rejoice mean? Well, to, to rejoice is defined as what? Having joy, right? Or to show great joy, to exude joy out of your heart, to show gladness, right? In case you're wondering, the Greek term here used for rejoice always, it means to rejoice always. That's what it means. It's FYI. It's very clear. Always means what? At all times, right? On all occasions. Every time. At all times. It could not be more clear, right? As we said, true joy is not the same as happiness. True joy comes from the Lord. How do we know this? Well, Paul tells us elsewhere in Philippians, right? Chapter 4, verse 4. You, don't, you can turn there if you like, but I'm, you don't have to. Uh, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. You know it, right? We have songs that are written about that. But do you remember when Paul said that? Where was he when he wrote that, when he said that? He's in prison, right? Again, I say rejoice. He's persecuted and hated for the name of Christ. He's sitting in prison. And it's not like prison today. He didn't have TV. He didn't have rec time. He didn't have social time. Family's not coming over, giving him candy and a cell phone so that he can call his old girlfriend. No, this is a Roman prison in the first century. But Paul makes clear here that your joy is found where? In the Lord. In the Lord. He doesn't say, be happy because things are about to turn around. Right? Or he doesn't say, be happy because things can only go up from here, as you might hear people say from time to time in a casino or something like that. It can only go up from here. No. He says, rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. See, this shows the sphere, if you will, in which believers' joy exists, right? It's a sphere that's unrelated to the circumstances of life around us. It's unrelated to what's going on around us, what's outside of our control. But it's founded and it's rooted in an unassailable, unchanging relationship with a sovereign God. Amen? See, a lot of people love to quote just a little bit further in Philippians chapter 4, right? Verse 13, you probably know it by heart. I can do 
all things, right? Through, whoops, almost lost the microphone there. I can almost, I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me, right? Many of us have that memorized, but some people, right? Like say, I don't know, celebrity preachers and things like that who quote this verse in pursuit of shameful gain and things like that, right? They're missing, they're forgetting the context of that verse. What's the context? Where's it coming out of? Well, we already said it, right? The context is suffering, persecution, pain, and knowing that we can go through any tribulation, any hurt, any pain, knowing who we are enduring that tribulation for. It's God, right? We endure it because we know that he's in control of it. We know that he has a purpose in it. Not only that, he helps us through it. We don't even have to do it alone. He helps us through it and he uses it for our good. We're told in Romans, right? He uses it. And not only that, we're told elsewhere that he ordains it. He ordains it. He's in control, complete, utter control of it. Was everything that happened to Joseph in Egypt a chance? By chance? No, God ordained it for a purpose, for his will, for his plan. So you see, many times when we find it difficult or near impossible to rejoice, we have to ask the question, why? Right? Why do we find it difficult to rejoice? Well, I think many times it's because we don't want what God wants. Well, Zach, what does God want? Well, we're told clearly in Scripture that what God wants for his people is to conform them, conform them more into the image of Christ. How does that happen? Through trials, through suffering, persecution. It's not fun being molded. It's not fun being conformed sometimes. Other times it can be quite joyous when you see the plan of God unfolding little by little, right? But it's not easy, right? Do we always want that? Do we want what God wants? No, we want the easy way most of the time, right? Well, the hard way, that's, you know, that's for Christians over there, right? In third world countries, and I don't want any of that, right? But then we contradict ourselves, right? We contradict ourselves when we pray things after that and say, oh, Lord, just make me more like Jesus. Please make me more like him. We've all prayed that, right? But do we really mean it? Do we really want that? Do we? Stephen was stoned. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was, get ready for this list, shipwrecked three times, beaten, stoned, flogged, caned, bitten by a poisonous snake, imprisoned and ultimately beheaded for the sake of Christ. Job, in his turmoil of losing everything, and I mean everything, that he had previously been blessed with, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can we say that? You see, many times being conformed to be more like Christ 
will be very difficult, will be very painful. All those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3. And then Jesus said as much in John chapter 16. He said, in this life, you will have tribulation. You will. Do we want what God wants? Do we want that? To be conformed no matter what the cost. Because if we truly do want that, this is why I'm saying all this, if we truly do want that, then we can find reason to rejoice always. Do you see that? Then and only then we can find the reason, the why of why we rejoice always. We say, God, I know that you have a purpose in this. I know that you are in control and I trust you. That's the basis and the root of our joy is trust in God. Trust in him, what he's done. Then number two, we do not cease in prayer, right? We do not cease in prayer. Paul says, pray without ceasing. It's a bold statement. Pray without ceasing. So here, see, here we need to avoid some sort of hyper-spirituality, right? Let's explain this. So we as believers are expected to pray when? In all circumstances, in every situation. We are to never cease prayer entirely, right? This Greek word here, idealiptos, means without. What it means is incessantly, without ceasing, right? Incessantly. We can't misunderstand this, right, and take some hyper-literal meaning, right, of what Paul's trying to say here. He's not saying we need to be praying 24-7, right? If he were saying that, Paul would have never gotten anything else done, right? We understand this. The apostles wouldn't have traveled all across the world from country to country, preaching the gospel, delivering the word of the Lord, delivering their letters, and those letters are being copied and copied and copied and passed around from church to church to church. We see this circular letter in Ephesus. None of that would have gotten done. They're not sitting in a room all day, every day, just in silent prayer, right? So though we do not pray 24-7, we should be, however, a people of habitual practice of prayer. It should be a habitual lifestyle, right? Prayer is necessary, right? It's required. It is good for us. It's good for us. It's good nutrition, right? Otherwise, Paul would not have put such a strong emphasis on it. He's putting a very strong emphasis on the habitual practice of prayer. And on the contrary, if we do cease to pray, it is detrimental to us, right? It is damaging to us. Well, how do we argue this? This this adverb, uh, without ceasing, this same phrasing here is used two other places in this same book, 1 Thessalonians. He goes in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, constantly, that's the word there, constantly, incessantly, do you see it? Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus, right? You constantly bear these things in mind, incessantly, never ceasing. And again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he uses the same word, same usage. We also constantly 
thank God that when you, the people of the church, received the word of God, which you heard from us, the apostles, you accepted it not as the word of men. Not as the word of men, but as the word of God, right? It's the word of God. So this word for constantly or without ceasing is talking about a lifestyle, right? It's talking about a habitual practice, a life that is marked and identified by fervent, patient prayer, right? When people look at you, is that how they would label your life? Is that how they would describe you? Is a person that is devoted to fervent prayer, right? Are you marked by that type of lifestyle? Paul says we should be, right? We should be. And I'm pre- believe me, I'm preaching to myself here just as much as anyone else. We can all, let's, let's be real here. All of us can improve our prayer life. Every single one of us. Even the preacher. Colossians 4 verse 2, he uses a similar, he has a similar usage there. He says, devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to it. What does that mean? He says, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. There it is again. See how closely linked these things are, prayer and thanksgiving. So to devote there literally means to be close at hand, to be right with you, ready to use at all times. If you go hunting, for instance, and you expect that there may be bears or wolves or something like that, what are you going to have close at hand? What's going to be devoted to your side? A weapon, I hope, at some sort of some sort, you know, something that's going to protect you. That's what this word devote literally means, to be close at hand. That's what prayer is to be to the believer. That's what prayer is to be. Jesus, our Lord, God incarnate, even modeled this for us perfectly several times throughout the New Testament. We see one example in Luke chapter 6. Uh, this was prior to him choosing the 12 disciples. And Luke tells us it was at this time that he, Jesus, went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. It's amazing, right? He demonstrates this for us, right? So as as believers, how do we apply this? Well, we should delight in communion with God. The fact that we have direct access to the Father through Christ What a benefit that is. What an amazing privilege that is. We should delight in talking to him and crying out for help when we need it. Crying out for peace, right? I love this quote from a a theologian named Dr. Edmund Hebert. He says, the practical demands of life make it impossible for believers to give themselves to constant 24-7 praying, but they are to live in the spirit of constant communion with God. In the Christian life, the act of prayer itself may be intermittent, but the spirit of prayer should be incessant. Incessant. And this this quote from Paul Washer as well, he said, some think only the strong pray. It's actually the very opposite. Only people who know they are weak pray. Right? Why? Because the strong think they have no need of prayer. They think they have no need of it. I don't need that. I have my money. I have my family. I have my job. I have my whatever. 
So if you are weak, and you are, and I am, then you recognize that a great part of the Christian life, right, is constantly recognizing how weak you really are and how dependent on God you are for everything. Everything. So you hear it all the time, though, don't you? You hear, well, there's nothing left to do but pray. Nothing left to do. Nothing, one thing left to do. <laughs> you know, like it's some last resort, right? <laughs> it's, the, it's the last, you should have started with prayer. You should have started there. The question has to become, do we trust God? Do we trust him? Do we truly trust him to pray about everything? Or do we think it's somehow left up to us? Right? Is God sovereign? Or are you? I hope we can all answer that question. So you see, next time you think to yourself, or again, preaching to myself here, oh, this is terrible. You know, I'm just going to have to Figure this out, you know. It's this awful situation. You need to bite your tongue and drop to your knees and say, Almighty God, I know that you already have this figured out. And not only that, I believe that you have ordained it for a purpose. And I trust you. That's our place as a believer. Pray without ceasing. I've said it before and I'll say it again. God in his sovereignty has decreed the beginning of time from the end of time. And he also has decreed the means to that end. Everything in between. He's in control over every single bit of it. Do we trust him? Do we trust him? That's why we pray without ceasing. And then number three, lastly here, we do not cease in thankfulness. We do not cease in thankfulness. Paul, verse 18, he says, give thanks in all circumstances, all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay, we do not cease in thankfulness. Well, why do we do that? How do we do that? So when we stand in the midst of trials, right, and troubles, and persecutions, no matter what we're going through, no matter what pain we're in, God says in his word that we can be thankful in the midst of all that. But why can we do that? Why? Well, we already touched on it a bit. Because we, as believers, know that because God is sovereign over all things, Everything we go through, both good and bad, all serves a purpose. All of it. We know that behind the providence of going through something painful, we know that there is something on the other side. Something past that, that we can't see. God knows exactly what we must go through in order to what? Continually be conformed to the image of Christ. We do not. We don't know. God knows. And because of that, we can what? Always be thankful. We can always be thankful, no matter what trial is thrown our way, right? Remember what I said at the beginning, only believers can 
do this. Why? Because they trust God. Because they trust God. Paul tells us this elsewhere, outside of this passage. He said the same thing to the, the a church at Ephesus, as well as the Colossians, right? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 through 20, he says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, right? You've heard this, but the last part is important. He says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, he's talking about, a lot of people like to quote that first part when we're talking about music in church, right? Sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Ah, but the next verse gives you the basis for that. It gives you the reason for that. Giving thanks always and for everything to God. That's why we can sing. Even our music should be impacted by this attitude of thankfulness, right? He said the thing, same thing in Colossians chapter 3. Verses 16 through 17, he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, right? You may be familiar with that verse. He said, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And here it is again, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with what? Thankfulness. Thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus. And here it is again giving thanks, giving thanks to God the Father through him, right? So you see what's happening here. He says, we can only live a life of thankfulness through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. That's why only believers can live this way. We have a basis for it. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly right? Because of that, because we have his word in our hearts, because we love his scriptures and we understand that his scripture is his word and it's there to build us up and edify us and convict us and change us, we can live a life of thankfulness. It's the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to do this in the first place, right? So as we grow as believers, we continue to grow in our sanctification through all our life and through maturing in the Lord, we become ever more aware that we have everything to be thankful for. Everything. Because the word of Christ dwells in us richly, we can and should always find a reason, the ultimate reason, right? To be thankful in all circumstances. Our thankfulness grows as a fruit right? Implanted by God. But we struggle with this, don't we? Right? Can we truly be thankful in all things? Can we really do that in all circumstances? Really, Paul? That's a little steep of an order, right? Have you ever had something snatched from you? Right? Have you ever had something taken away that you desired? Something that you thought you deserved? Why should we rejoice in that? huh? Why should we be thankful in losing something that we thought we loved or that we thought we needed? Why? Because he knows. He knows what we need. He knows all of it. Or do you have something strong, perhaps, or something so you think is strong, something that you're holding on to that makes you have some sense of security, right? 
anything like that. Scripture says it's nothing but sinking sand. Nothing. Or you may think, oh God, I needed that thing. You know, if I could have just had that one thing or if I could have just accomplished that one goal, everything would be fine. I needed that. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. If you truly needed it, then God would have given it to you. Is he sovereign or is he not? That's the question, right? Do we trust him? See, I know people who, <laughs> I'm sure you do too, people who have placed all their trust, their anchor, their foundation, everything in their parents, for instance, right? It's common. You're raised up as a child. You trust your parents. You, you rely on them. That's natural, I think. I'm not condemning that necessarily. But from the time they were a child up through adolescence, teen years in college, they depend on their parents to be their rock, right? They're depending on their parents' faith, right? Not their own. And then when things fall apart with their parents, right? Their foundation is ripped out from underneath them. They don't know where to go. Well, if my parents can fail, then what hope do I have? Things fall apart. They're left rotting in despair and pain and hatred, right? Sometimes because their foundation has disappeared. Their foundation wasn't in God, right? Listen, I don't care if your parents are believers or not. I do care, to be clear. I want them to be believers. But what I'm getting at here is they are not your foundation. Christ must be your foundation. He must be your rock. He must be your anchor. You place your trust in him and you submit yourself at the feet of God. Proverbs 3 says, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. He will make your path straight. I love what Steve Lawson says all the time. He says, God can, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. He can, and he does. The point is, you will be let down. You will be let down. If your foundation of trust is in man, you will. Why? Because man is sinful. Man is fickle. Your foundation must lie in Christ. If in the name of Christ you trust and live, then, this is why I'm saying all this, then you have cause to be thankful for everything. For everything. Not only do you have cause, furthermore, to be thankful for everything, you are commanded to do so. It's a command. Sometimes we don't realize that part. He says, verse 18, this is the will of God for you. That is a command. He's showing you, this is the will of God for you. You must do this. This is what you are expected to do. And therefore, we don't like to talk about this. I don't like to talk about this very often because it's convicting, right? It is, in fact, sinful to be ungrateful to God to live in unthankfulness 
It is. And again, preaching to myself. We do this. We are creatures of, un, of ingratitude. <laughs> Look back to the garden. <laughs> From the very beginning, this is who we are by nature many times. So when you have a spirit, right, that is just dark and you're in a place where you don't think you have anything to be thankful for, the point is you dig into the scriptures. You dig into God's word and they grab you and they take hold of you and they convict your heart. And the scriptures say, look at the cross. They say, look at what Christ has done. Look at everything he's accomplished by his blood, by his sacrifice. Look at what he's done for you. And then that will put your problems back into perspective, won't it? It puts us back in our place as a creature. Look what Christ has done for you and how he has molded you and he's changed you and he continues to do so despite our wickedness, despite our pulling and yanking at every opportunity and, and, and pushing against the conforming because we don't want it. We don't always want it. It's hard. But because we trust him, we should trust him. We can be thankful in all things. In, in closing here, I want to just hop over to Romans 8. See, this is a, this is a cr great cross-reference and a great reminder that sums up the foundation for everything that we've covered here in Thessalonians, right? The foundation, the reason for why we can rejoice, why we can be thankful in all things, right? We've talked about it, but I feel that this passage sums it up very well. Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. Paul says, and we, believers, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are the called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What a beautiful picture of the work of God in the life of believers who did not want him, who were dead in their sins and trespasses, who were in rebellion against him in their sin. See, everything that God is doing in this world all serves a purpose. Ultimately, for who? For his church, for his people. And even greater than that, we need to recognize it's ultimately for his glory. For his glory. So that he can be, he can be shown as the almighty God who gives grace to wretched sinners who don't deserve it. Everything serves a purpose. We are weak and we're wrong and we're sinful and we're futile and we're finite. But this passage in Romans 8, as well as our main passage in 1 Thessalonians, tells us that we have reason to be thankful. We have reason to rejoice, right? Amidst trials and tribulations and death and hunger and cancer and bitterness and strife and grudges and family drama and physical pain and mental pain. 
Paul says, we know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things serve a purpose. So you may be sitting there in whatever you're going through in the list of of problems and, and pains that I just listed. And you may think sometimes it's meaningless. It's meaningless. No good can come out of this. That's a lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It is not meaningless. Because you need to follow that out to its logical conclusion, right? Guess what? If it were meaningless and it served no purpose, you need to recognize that that would logically imply that God is not in control over that situation, right? And if God's not in control over that circumstance, then he's not sovereign. And if he's not sovereign, then he's not God. And we're in big trouble, right? It's not meaningless. We can get caught up in these circumstances and forget that God is God. He is the almighty God. We get caught up in these things. What you need to never forget is that your greatest need is not physical. Your greatest need is not emotional. It's not mental. It is spiritual. Your greatest need is to be forgiven of your sins and to be justified before a holy God. That's your greatest need. And in fulfilling that need, Scripture says he justified the ungodly. He provided the sacrificial lamb himself. He's done far more than we ever could have asked or imagined. He made us sons and daughters, co-heirs with the king, we're told. When we contributed nothing, nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary, accompanied by filthy, wretched rags. We gave nothing. He gave everything, provided the sacrificial lamb. He atoned for our sins, justified us before a holy God, made the sacrifice with his blood. He propitiated the wrath of God that was meant for me. And you took that wrath upon himself and he said, it is finished. And he saved us and he made us alive. He raised us up and he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2. Amen. That's what God has done. So we have to recognize that one of the most wicked things that we can ever do, that I can ever do is to simply not believe God, is to not rejoice and to not be thankful. That's one of the most wicked things I can ever do. How dare I ever lack in my thankfulness and my gratitude to an almighty God that has granted me salvation and peace with him. Peace with him. The grace of God. Amen? You see, the, the purpose of all this is not to cut you down. It's not to pull you into some sort of 
despair. The purpose of, of this sermon and the purpose of this text in First Thessalonians is to say, lay it all aside. Look at Christ. Look at the gospel. And be thankful. Right? That if you are in Christ, all your sins are gone, past, present, and future, and you are at this moment declared completely righteous before God. And it's not even your righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness that you are clothed in. It's the righteousness of Christ. And he loves you with a perfect, infinite love. Because you're in Christ. So because of that wonderful truth of assurance, gives us assurance, we have reason to rejoice without ceasing. We have reason to pray without ceasing. And we have reason to give thanks to God in all circumstances. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, almighty sovereign God, we are so thankful for your word. It is convicting to us. It is life to us. God, please continue to open our eyes to the truth of your word. Open our ears. Help us to understand and live by the gospel every day. Give us joy, Lord. Implant your joy and thankfulness in us so that we might tell others about you. Tell others what you have done for us, God. God, please use us as you used Paul as an instrument for your purposes, for your glory, Lord. Please use us. Draw us closer to you, Lord. I pray that you would sanctify your people this day. I pray that you would give us peace and assurance and conviction where necessary, Father. Lord, we love you and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much for having me.